Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the blackest corners of your mind. They call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We're creeping swiftly toward the end of January. After tonight, we've got just one more episode left in the month. And why is that significant, you ask? Well, for anyone not in the know, February is Women in Horror Month. And to celebrate this year, our very own fiction editor, Meredith Morgenstern, will be taking over the reins to share some history and insight into the indelible mark women have made on our genre. She's got some great stories lined up, too, so make sure you keep your ears out for that in a couple of weeks. Also looming on the horizon is the close of our current submission period. For those of you teasing and toying with the final details of your manuscript, 
or anyone who's been contemplating swinging open the vault and letting that long, lingering masterpiece free to wreak havoc on the world, this is your warning bell, that it may well be time to get the lead out. So, finish off that draft, polish it to a sacrificial dagger's gleam, and send it our way. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions. I'll drop you another reminder just before we close, but don't risk sliding under the gate at the last second, because we all know how fatally messy that can be. And of course, as one door begins to swing closed, we can hear the faint creak of another cracking open down the passage. What's this? Those maddening howls coming from the other side seem to be the anguished screams of another flash fiction contest. Well, children of the night, this is another one you won't want to miss out on. But don't jump the gun just yet. Sure, start sharpening your quills by all means. Stay tuned for more details on our theme. We'll be revealing that in a few weeks. I promise, it's going to be dreadful. We have four tales for you this evening about a lonely girl who finds a friend, something that creeps on a cold winter's night, an unexpected warm day, and why you shouldn't mistake a cage tiger for a tame one. Our first story for the evening comes from Emil Cholich. Emil Cholich is a Yugoslavia-born, Australia-raised, Amsterdam-dwelling Kiwi. During the day, he works as a creative and writer in advertising. At night, he tries to scrub himself clean with the sweet loofah mitt of fiction writing, and by helping run Strained Birds, an international writer's group. Children of the Night, join me for Emil Cholich's Put Into Pieces, a Tales to Terrify original. Pleased to meet you. Say, would you mind helping me? Uh, just a little? Uh, I'm all in pieces. Some rude, horrible, mean man put me in pieces. Uh, like my arm. It's all the way on the other side of the room. Behind my mummy's wedding dress? A and on top of that big wardrobe by the window. That's my left leg. But I, I can't walk over there without it. Why are you looking at me like that? What is that look on your silly little face? I'm not the one who came into someone else's home. Sneaking around in their personal private space, you climbed my stairs into my attic. And now you're looking at me with a face like that? Oh, no, 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 wait. 
Come back. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. I suppose you're here because you hear me. At night, when the wind's quiet, crying. Well, can you blame me? H have you seen what I look like? I used to be pretty. Oh, the prettiest. My face, the finest porcelain. When I had both my eyes, they were beautiful. Almost as nice as yours. Such shiny little eyes, Caitlin. I lost one of mine when the mean man did all those awful things to me forever ago. He put me in a fire and burned up my pretty dress. Then he threw me in the lake. The water was so cold and slimy and gross. I had to crawl back home all on my own. Then he got really mad and tried to bury me deep in the dirt. All the bugs ate my hair and the worms wriggled inside me. It took days, I think. It was hard to tell under the ground. But I still came home because proper girls come home on time. And that's what Daddy says all the time. Right, Katie? Except the mean man got so, so mad when he saw me. He pulled me apart and put me in all these pieces. He was so mad and he was screaming. He didn't look where he stepped. And he fell down, all the way down my stairs. Serves him right, don't you think? We shouldn't ever get so mad or, or bad things will happen to us. But you're not like the mean man, Katie. You're a kind thing. I can tell. You heard me crying, and you came. You're here to help. Won't you help me? Please? You know what it's like to be sad like me. I hear your tiny footsteps during the day walking around in circles in this boring, old, smelly, broken house all the way out here. No other kids, and Mommy and Daddy are always so, so busy. But I can be your friend. I love playing. There are so many toys up here I want to show you. Do you like horses? Of course you do. I have three. They're sleeping under the barn with my sister Hannah. Oh, you'd love her. The mean man said I made them all sick. But that's silly. They're just sleeping. They're ready to wake up now. Oh, we could ride horses everywhere. You and me and Hannah. All three of us will be sisters forever. And none of us will ever, ever be alone. Or bored. Or in pieces. Ever again. All you have to do is help, Katie. That a girl. My tummy first. It's over there in the wooden box with the funny writing on it.
That was Emil Cholich's Put Into Pieces, is read by Michelle Kane. Michelle is from the Kansas City metropolitan area. She has a dulcimer and a baudrin that she doesn't have time to play because she spends her time working in a cube farm and being a mom to her six-year-old son and their 11-year-old Labrador. And, of course, narrating stories when she has the chance. She can be found on Twitter at ShellDavis72. Thank you, Michelle. Our second tale tonight comes from Emily Henry Burnham, who we also heard from last week. Emily Burnham is a creative writer living in Bend, Oregon, but originally from Hertfordshire, England. She has a master's degree in journalism and more than 15 years of experience as a multimedia reporter, columnist, and editor, with a penchant for stories of redemption and resiliency. Her fiction work tells imaginative tales of dark fantasy and magical realism, exploring themes of trauma, beauty, identity, and mortality. Although she is, as yet, officially unpublished, her flash horror story, The Dog, was featured in the local newspaper, The Bend Bulletin, and she recently won a notable story Thinkerbeat Award for a short story submission to Unreal Magazine. She is racking up second-round rejections and continues to write with abandon. Listen with me, children of the night, to Emily Henry Burnham's Winter Solstice, a Tales to Terrify original. On the shortest day of the year, when night rules day and darkness reigns, a piece of shadow breaks free. Watch as a tendril of the winter's night unfurls into the cold air and reaches toward the glowing orange light falling from the window of a house. Your house. See yourself inside, clutching a blanket in a chair by the fire dozing and dreaming of cinnamon and cloves while sparks of red flame dance behind your eyes. See the shadow touch the frosted path leading to your front door and slither along in silence to reach the gap beneath the wood where the draft gets through. It slides beneath and expands with a shiver of contentment as it consumes the warmth within. Quickly now, the darkness rolls along your hallway, passing under the mistletoe without thought of a kiss, extinguishing the lights on the tree and trailing the sour smell of rotting flesh. Watch how it reaches your chair and slows. The shadow splits into five inhuman fingers, which quiver before your bare feet uncovered by the blanket. The fingertips of darkness touch your little toe, and with an icy jolt, the shadow slides under your skin and disappears into your flesh. You wake with a start. The fire has died. 
The Room is Black. By New Year's Day, the corruption will have spread to your bones, metastasized from your feet to your skull. Soon you will know. The shadow will seep into your brain and change your dreams forever. That was Emily Henry Burnham's Winter Solstice, as read by Jesse Holt. Little is known about Jesse Holt, though rumors have circulated that he was found frozen within a 20,000-year-old ice formation during an Arctic oil drilling expedition. This is purely speculation, of course, as the official records state that the entire staff of the camp perished and what was described at the time as the most savage polar bear attack in history, judging by the mutilated and partially consumed corpses that littered the snow. Strangely, no bear tracks were found. Today, Jesse is a voice actor and tour guide with a passion for travel, and he's always happy to meet new victim... er, uh, friends. You can find him on Twitter at Voice or on his website at jessieholtvoice.com. Thank you, Jesse. Our third story this evening comes from William John Wither. William John Wither is a writer and designer living in Montreal, Canada. They are the lead designer of Impact, a foresight game, and have been published in the Puritan, Exile Quarterly, Yoke Literary, and the CVC-8 Anthology among others. Their stories use foresight methodologies to build dystopian futures that shed light on modern-day realities. More of their work can be found at williamwither.com. Children of the Night, immerse yourselves in William John Wither's And the Sun Went Down, a Tales to Terrify original. They awoke to a summer sun in the depths of winter. As it filtered in through the east-facing windows, it felt warm on their skin. Parents had risen early and wrapped themselves in wool coats and warm socks and winter shawls to fetch the morning paper, just to step outside and feel themselves sticky with a ferocious sweat. Upon fetching the times, Its forecast read snow squalls and bitter frost for the week, yet the snow all around had begun to melt, filling the streets with walkable rainbows. Some looked around to others on the suburban block, 
then found themselves in their basements, opening boxes of stale shirts and worn running shoes. The sleeping children heard a pitter-patter, as if joyous bugs on a cottage lake, and stirred. They jumped from their beds, and from their second-story windows saw their parents running in the street and went to join them. On their porches, they saw the waves of neighbors as they jogged past, the summer rays reflecting off the morning dew, feeling the wet between their toes. Jackets the color of soot hung unneeded in their rows as drawers were upturned for the perfect summer clothes. There were socks with curly lavender trim and cut-off shorts of cotton twill as pale legs shook off their winter drear. Pits and parts were hastily shaven in the bathtub, and toodle-doo braids were delicately spun in front of TVs, showing stumped weathermen who joked that June couldn't wait for January. They said it was 15 degrees, although everyone dressed like it was 30. Children with their knapsacks packed, mewed as if they could pretty please stay home as parents said no, no, but wondered the same thing. Then the morning bus came, sprinkling water back onto the newly naked lawns, and the children were sent on their way. Parents in pattern suits and blouses turned the keys in their well-washed cars and bobbed like lazy submarines down the concrete rivers. Open windows met a delightful wind from the slowly turning surf below as it filtered into the thirsty sewer grates. No one looked down into the stream to see the inevitable winter thaw of discarded butts and unwashed waste left out in the cold. It was sun, and it was warm, and one couldn't help but to look up and have their face kissed like the first day after an Alaskan winter evermore. People who had chosen to walk plodded in rubber boots and whimsically kicked at the retreating frost like the end of a long battle. They got ice in their drinks and watched the world unwind like a precious music box, heard the song it played as they floated downstream to their morning towers, silently wishing they too would be swept away. The children sat in their classes, with the breeze drifting in as they heard the faint whispers of history and science being taught, though they didn't know to whom. The student closest to the window would, from time to time, stick their hand outside and silently report back to the rest of the class. Through nods and notes and winks, they knew it was warmer at 9.30, warmer still by 10 to 11 as each sat poised in their seat, buzzing with kinetic fuzz, waiting for the noon bell. Downtown, the sun had turned the towers into tropic greenhouses with metallic alloy for flora. Blazers unbuttoned hung from shoulders and unoccupied seats as their owners scanned the long horizon blurry with cement. All pleasantly stared through the tempered glass and felt the heat crawl up their noses and fingers, 
None told anyone to go back to work. All stood with their eyes closed, the light magnifying onto their faces, modern-day Icaruses in their high-rises, closer to the sun than ever before. And so, a decision was made. They called it a summer day, for in many ways it was. The children heard the announcement over the PA and jumped from their seats. They streamed into a field brimming with every color made more vibrant without a window between them. The joy flushed into their cheeks and bubbled into glorious beads of sweat, abruptly roused from hibernation. Each ran the whole way home, and when they got there, were greeted by parents in floppy hats and knee-length trunks and cherry blossom sandals. They were going to the beach. In their cars, hands hung freely out windows and held onto dogs thirsty for the wind. Foots on pedals puttered along without any rush to their step. Radios blared last summer's tunes, and sandwiches of fresh tomato and cold cuts sat perspiring inside wicker baskets recently filled with Christmas lights. The road glowed a lemon yellow as passengers played I spies and laughed longer than their lips had allowed them to in recent months. Blankets were laid and buckets were filled with agreeing sand as a new city was built on the bank of the old one. Expired bottles of sunscreen clumped on the unseasoned skin of those who didn't care. They joked along with friends they hadn't seen outside in months. Balls bounced in hands without a callus on them. Swimsuits held tightly to newly shaped bodies. No one felt self-conscious weight. Cold bottles washed away any feelings of discomfort as the sun beat down onto reddening bodies. Up went the parasols and they continued to play. Hands reached for fresh ice and found there was none. People laughed at the ferocious heat and went on drinking just the same. Kids who had played for hours came back crying, sore with peeling skin that had taken more than it could handle. Aloe and kisses only did so much as they sat underneath the canopy of umbrellas now cluttered with the sweltering lot. Hats came off, and sweat dripped away more and more of the drinks thirstily drank, though their effect wasn't as sweet. Families hurried back to their cars in the late afternoon sun, spent and looking for cooler places to hide. Their ACs lent a relieving breath to the burn they had felt outside. Tuckered children slept in the back seat as parents spoke of the unnatural weathers and listened to mysterious wonders on the radio. It was hot there as it was anywhere, and horns honked at cars stalled on the highway side. Gas compressors and engines had given out from the excess heat and wouldn't restart. Stranded families hitched rides with those afforded the space, thinking on the funny things in fickle cars they'd have to handle another day. Back in the suburbs, 
Houses sat dark in the dimming light. Families rushed inside and pressed down, down on their thermostats as they waited for artificial relief. Children lay sticky on leather couches, whining for burned cream and ice. Sore spots were wrapped in pee packs and held tightly by concerned parents. Dogs panted in the entryway and were hastily shaved using dad's morning razor. They washed the itchy hair off in sub-zero showers that reluctantly parted with their water. TVs were turned on in every window, the only lights on, as weathermen pointed to graphs higher than their height before they abruptly went away, and all that was left was silence. Switches and breakers were flicked and gave no effect to the house's internal systems. Backup generators didn't whirl, fridges didn't hum, lights didn't fizz, and the walls didn't make any of the noises they would usually make. Only the red sun shone through the cracks in the draped windows. Fathers went into the street to stare at others in inquisitive contemplation. All shrugged back at a loss before looking down at their feet where water had begun to leak from the houses. The streets began to flood as they had only that morning, but in a much fiercer climate than before. Every drop immediately sizzled into the moist air, making an unbearably humid box no one could stand in. The children cried for ice, but there was none. Then something cold, but there wasn't. Taps released dry coughs, and all that could be heard was the dog whining as it lay stiller and stiller on the foyer rug. All who could rushed back into their cars and kept the lights off. They drove through once busy streets to find everything as dark as their own. They saw the faces of those lying on their backs as they stuck to the frying sidewalks. There was a smell in the air that made everyone realize how hungry they were. Yet there was no time to eat as families traveled in the only direction they could, back towards the horizon and sea. The broken cars that had been abandoned on the roadside were joined by a second fleet, their radios humming a static. Parents held their kids and threw on backpacks of salvaged supplies from now empty cupboards and scurried into the dense forests in search of shade. The sun on the horizon peaked below the lowest branches as their pine needles gave off all the moisture they had left. Fathers tripped over furry lumps that shifted from their weight, but kept moving. Above, trees were dressed in damp shirts and summer shorts and baseball caps, abandoned by those who had made their way further in. Families who saw each other said nothing. Only the moaning and screaming of raw children could be heard throughout the brush, though the sun didn't listen. 
no matter the direction, no matter the depth or level of shade. Forever heat rained down more fierce and unforgiving than anybody had ever known. Families changed course and headed towards the sun, tripping over even larger lumps without ever looking down. Closer, they moved towards the empty beach, towards their new city in the sand. On the crest of the forest, families forewent their modesty and stripped down to the barest of their parts. They left their food with their clothes and descended into the calm of the sea. Together, families huddled in repressed silence, floated in each other's arms as little bubbles, one first, then more, began to pop all around. It sounded like applause. Fathers looked at mothers with tears in their eyes as heads bobbed lower and lower on the surface of the water. When all that could be seen or heard were bubbles, the world sung of champagne, and the sun went down. That was William John Withers, and the sun went down, as read by Andrew Gibson. Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming, and he remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson, or, for the more romantically inclined, Blake Lockhart. You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in the Narrator Nook and the Haven Discord servers, links to which are in the show notes. Thank you, Andrew. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our final tale this evening comes from Nathaniel Lee. Nate puts words in various orders. Sometimes people give him money afterward. No one knows why. You can find more of his writing at mirrorshards.net, including a lot of free short and microfiction and a very intermittently updated blog. So, sit back, relax, and listen with me, children of the night, to Nathaniel Lee's Hiking Tour of the Abyss. A Tales to Terrify original. My shift ends at eight, and if I can catch one of the express lifts and get to the platform in time for a mag train, I can get across town in fifteen minutes, which leaves me just enough time to pick up a cup of soy noodle from the rickety old faber shop and eat it in the street before the zoo opens at half past the hour. The noodles are bland, because the flavour module doesn't work anymore, but it's cheap. Especially now that everyone has the newer model, that actually builds food molecules with nanomachinery, instead of just squirting flavour on processed soy paste. Even if the price weren't a consideration, and on my salary, it's always a consideration, I'd buy there anyway. I think it's important to remember the way things used to be. I read a lot of history on the net during the slow hours of my shift, which is all of the hours, honestly. I spent a week on the history of Fabers for a paper once. When it was new, that shop was state-of-the-art. I think it's a shame the way we discard things as soon as they aren't useful anymore. The morning crew at the ticketing gate... It's always either Ronnie or Vincentio, now that May Lynn quit. Know me on sight. I just have to wave my pass at the scanner. Talk about archaic, huh? And head on through. Most of the animals are asleep at this hour. And I have to dodge cleaning bots still trundling gamely along the paved paths. I speedwalk past the open-air displays, heading for the long, low building that houses the insects, reptiles, and other species with... special needs. I have nothing against normal animals, mind you. I'm all for them, in fact, but I'm here for one display in particular, and it's important that I get there on time. The reptile house is dark and musty, full of the sharp, high smell of shed scales and dust. Ultraviolet lamps flicker here and there, along with the swollen spheres of the heat lamps. Off to the right is the erected room, which has its own delicate charm. But for me, the main attraction, the central purpose, the star of the show, is ahead and to the left in the special collections room. There, in a glass-fronted chamber, 
surrounded by the faint hum of a military-grade resonance field generator, is fear. That's what the little silver plaque says. Fear. There is no Latin name, no taxonomy or description of native habitat, because what lives in that cage is not an animal. Some people might take issue with the idea that it lives at all, in fact, but it does. I've seen it. The interior is completely dark. If you lean up against the glass and cup your hands to shut out even the dim crimson light of the special collections room, you can see the faintest hint of motion. As though the shadows on the other side are some exotic liquid, flowing like supercooled helium up the walls and across the ceiling. I like to imagine what it might be like to feel their chill touch on my skin, a tangible darkness, like a blanket of snakes wrapping around me. I lean in and press my forehead against the glass. It's cold, like the door of a freezer. My breath fogs against it. I focus my thoughts, imagine the first fingers of dread touching the back of my neck, picture the billow and roll of living shadow and the gleam of sharp teeth within. A thrill shudders down my spine, and goosebumps rise all over my body. Horripulation, that's called. I read about it. It's an unconscious fear response. Atavistic. Primeval. The shadows move faster the longer I lose myself in them. That's why I come here every day. They don't feed him properly. In the tenebrous swirls behind the glass, I see shapes. Wolves, bats... Spiders, great hunting cats, and other things. Stranger things. Dragons and wraiths, the unquiet dead, and twisted once-human monstrosities. The images come piecemeal, in flashes of claws and blades, piercing needles and grinding teeth. Xenia, my old girlfriend, didn't understand. She said I came here because I wanted to feel brave, that I was like a cat, walking a tall fence and taunting the chained dog in the yard. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't exciting, in a way. The delicious shiver of horror isn't my only reason. The zoo staff will think I'm some sort of neo-Gothic freak, a Satan worshipper. But that's not it either. I'm one of the good guys. I'm on the side of the light, not shadow. I work as a security guard, don't I? Not that that means much these days. I sit and monitor readouts while the bots do all the patrols. I watch for pests and do basic bot maintenance. Mostly I read. No. I'm not here to praise a dark god. And I'm not here to prove anything. I'm here for us. For me and my kind. We need the fear. And I'm the only one who even noticed he was dying. I've been staying longer every day. It started cutting into my sleep, like it is today, but I don't mind. I let my mind drift in the darkness. It's relaxing, like meditation. I don't even notice time passing. The shadows twist, and I catch a glimpse of a pale face, stark white against the black, like the moon in shadows. A human face. Masculine, with a long Greek nose and a high dome of brow above it. The eyes... Pallid yellow and faintly luminous, meet mine for a moment. Before the face is swallowed again in darkness, I jump back, breath rasping in my throat and heart pounding. I feel the adrenaline singing in my veins like I haven't felt in months. I hadn't realised how acclimated I'd become. 
Now I revel in the chill that sweeps across my body as the sudden sweat evaporates, in the trembling of my hands and limbs as the flood of stress hormones recedes. I am present now, existing in my body in a way normally out of reach. God, it's wonderful. This is the good stuff, the pure stuff. This is what we've all been missing, and him most of all. Nothing else unusual happens for the rest of my stay, but the darkness of the reptile house seems just that bit thicker and richer when I finally leave. My heart is light as I ride the mag train home to sleep away the day. My dreams are strong and deep and full of shadow. They have a savour to them, like a good dark ale or a perfect cup of coffee. I sleep well. The hours of my shift are as long and empty as a shed snakeskin. Thirty minutes of documentation at the beginning and end, plus a brief moment of action when number four goes on the fritz and I have to reboot it manually. I have plenty of time to think about the fear, and the pale man in the cage. Was that just an enhancement of my usual visions? Was it, perhaps, a reaction to me? Some automatic response engendered by my presence, my attention and focus? Or had I discovered something new? Something sweet, generous that lived in that darkened room, that had been there all along? The mechanisms of fear's capture and containment are unfamiliar to me. It had made a small splash in the scientific literature several years previously, back when the resonance field was new and concrete psycholinguistics were the hot fad. But when the public discovered that what all those fancy words actually meant was a dark room that made you a little nervous to look at, interest flagged. I am hardly on the cutting edge of scientific discovery myself, but tonight, here I am with a computer, a netlink, and more time than I know what to do with. It is a fascinating world. I can barely scratch the surface, especially with only access to the public documents. I wonder if I can finagle the security clearance to get at the real meat of it. Somehow. My head is spinning with new words and ideas when I rush past Ronnie at the zoo entrance and practically run to the special collections room. The darkness pulses softly behind its glass, blurred by the slightest visual static of the resonance field. Are you in there? I ask. Can you hear me? At first, I think I'm simply crazy. That what I saw yesterday was a fluke, a hallucination brought on by sleep deprivation and wishful thinking. I feel a sinking in my gut as I grow gradually more certain that nothing will happen. Then, gentle as a flower blooming, the shadows flex and congelate, moving with purpose. Dark slides through dark, sensuous as syrup, and the pale man is there. I see him dimly, as if through a faulty video link or a gauzy curtain. His eyes are downcast, heavily lidded, but I feel his attention on me like the pressure of an approaching storm. I'm here, he says. I am always here. Yes. I watch him hungrily, tracing the aristocratic lines of his face with my eyes. You, he says, are not like the others. He drifts to the left. I can't see his feet, but he does not walk so much as glide. Have you seen the others, then? The ones who came in the daytime, or, or who used to come? The pale man makes a small gesture with one hand, visible through the muck like a crab scuttling blind and white through an underwater cave. I have... impressions. 
It is as though I have been on a long walk through a desert, a sense of heat, of oppression, and every so often a single drop of water upon my parched tongue. I see blank, incurious eyes housing souls like lumps of lead, like stone blocks that resist. He pauses. It has been lonely. His sadness pierces my heart. How well I know what it feels like. You are the last, I tell him, my voice somber. There are no others like you left in the world. Like me. I see a flash of gold as his gaze flicks to me and away again. His eyes are not as colourless as they were yesterday. And what am I, then? A manifestation, I say, proud of my newfound knowledge. A concrete embodiment of the collective unconscious, created via a revolutionary focusing technique, and the first tangible fruits of the metaphysical sciences. A nightmare made real. A monster. Ah, he says. His lips quirk in an odd half-smile. Is that it? I had wondered. It's terrible what they've done to you, I say. They cage you, chain you, put you on display. It's a mockery, an insult, he shrugs. I have been insulted many times. It will not be the last. I can see cloth moving across his shoulders and realise that I hadn't been able to do so before. He is sharper, more present, more embodied every moment. But doesn't it bother you? He paces to the other side of his enclosure, stares up at the corner. I can see his feet. Why is it that you have returned? I come every day, I tell him. There is a silence, and I rush to fill it with an explanation. You know what I do for a living? I'm the priest of a dead religion. The robots watch the warehouse, and I watch the robots, waiting for thieves who never come. The fathers make sure everyone has enough to eat, and anyone who wants to work can afford luxury goods. Even if someone was greedy enough and lazy enough to want to steal, instead of take some piss-easy make-work job, it's simpler and faster to just doctor your credit directly on the computer. Robots fight the wars. The only populations that suffer disease are the ones who refuse to accept the treatments. Violence is unheard of, unless you count suicides, which are common as dirt. The pale man continues his scan of his cubicle, distracted, not even glancing at me. An idyllic existence. I snort. I'm supposed to be a guard. What am I guarding against? There's nothing left to be afraid of. How can you be brave when you've captured the last monster in the world? The pale man smiles. I see the glint of sharp teeth behind his lips. Ah, you wish to feel fear. And so you came to me, yes? Well, I hesitate. I mean... That's part of it. But there's hollows and vids and things for that. It's more... When I first came here, you were sick. Dying. The pale man goes still, but I press on. No one else had been in this room all day. They said at the gate that barely a handful of people had been through all week. But when I came in, you reacted. The dark thickened. I realised then that you needed to be feared needed awe and respect to survive. It's important to keep things alive, to remind us how it used to be. It's a sacred thing. I've been visiting daily ever since, trying to feel that holy terror. 
I lean in, peering through the gloom. It was the least I could do, I thought. The silence stretches, congeals and begins to crystallise. I feel it like glass needles creeping into my flesh. Pity. The pale man still stares at the ceiling, his lips barely moving. Pity. His voice rises, deepens, grows rough and jagged. Pity. He is so fast that I do not perceive him moving. His fist slams the glass in front of my nose, sending cracks spiderwebbing through it with a sound like a gunshot. I leap back. Impudence! Insolence! He is screaming now, his face contorted, and his fist strikes again, sending glass fragments spiralling outward. I cover my face, ducking away. I wanted to help, I protest feebly. I have no need for charity, the pale man snarls. You talk of caging me, of science and technology, of power. You think your kind created me. You apes forget what drove you from the trees to the earth, what pushed you together and gave you speech and fire to banish the night. You are children, tampering in the affairs of your betters. Too far, too long. You have forgotten your place, snivelling animals. I will not be pitied. He leaps with the sharp-edged hole he has made in the window, but the resonance field flares to life. Indigo and violet sparks crackle and buzz and shriek. I am in a swarm of incandescent wasps, a lightning storm, an artillery bombardment. The illumination is the wrong colour and it hurts my eyes. The pale man screams and his wail blends with the sound of his ethereal cage, a hurricane of noise. Please, I shout. Get out, the pale man says. His eyes are orange now, blazing like a furnace as he thrashes in the field's grasp. Get out, get out, get out! I flee, and the darkness behind me flashes with impossible light again and again. My injuries, such as they are, sting and ache as I lie in bed that day. A few scratches, a pair of glass splinters in my arm, a faint ringing in my ears. I'm assured that the resonance field remains intact, that the problems I experienced were the result of a freak accident. A flaw in the tampered glass had unexpectedly expressed itself in violent dissolution. Such things have happened, I know, their excuse is plausible. I am told that the company responsible for installing the windows will be contacted, and that I will be kept abreast of any developments via V reparations or settlements. None of this matters to me. Nor am I comforted as I toss and turn in my dimly lit sleeping chambers, while the sun pounds against my shattered windows. The tingle in my spine warns me of the presence in my room. And it is with a curious lack of surprise that I roll over to see the pale man seated tailor-style on my ceiling. He wears a tight-fitted black suit, or what appears to be a suit. His hands are folded neatly in his lap. His eyes are smouldering coals, fire on ebony, and their yellow-orange glow contrasts with the mushroom-pale white of my indirect lighting. I find I cannot move can barely breathe through a throat clenched, suddenly dry and tight as a fist. I was hasty, he says. This morning, I acted inappropriately. In truth, I owe you a debt. I have grown complacent these latter days. Careless to be caught. Foolish to disregard the consequences. You have reminded me of my task. 
of the struggle I should never have allowed to lapse. Alas, I find I have spent too long in atrophic slumber. I must gather my forces for a time. But soon, very soon, the world will know that I have returned in triumph, to rule in shadow forevermore. I find myself almost impatient, thinking of it now. Ironic, after so long spent unconscious and uncaring. He grins at me, displaying his fangs. When I come to claim my children, I will gather you up and make you my own. This will be my gift to you, this promise, that you may know my coming and await me in fear and in trembling. Sleep well, child. Sleep well and dream. He spreads his arms and falls upon me, and I awaken myself screaming. When I travel to the special collections room the following morning, I know what I will find. But I must see it myself. I must be sure. The room is dark, but the shadows no longer move of their own volition. The resonance field hums, but it is idle, pointless, a mere decoration. Whatever lived in that room is there no longer. I have watched the news closely since then. I read of rising tensions, of new outbreaks, of unrest and aggression, violence and death. Have these been here all along? Are long-buried seas finally germinating? I feel it myself. The growing urge to lash out. The anger that I thought had long since been subsumed in the cloying quicksand of ennui. Has it always been there? This rage? This thirst? Did I never notice it before? Or is this the first signs of what is to come? I wish I could say. Memory is a liar and a thief. Nothing it says can be trusted. I test myself daily, looking in the mirror, fearing, anticipating, hoping for physical signs. What will I become when the pale man comes for me again? Or has he already returned? I feel the fingers of fear, ice and chitting against my skin. The sensation is no longer quite so pleasurable. That was Nathaniel Lee's Hiking Tour of the Abyss, as read by Georgia Cook. Georgia Cook is an illustrator and writer from London. She has experience on both sides of the recording booth, and in addition to Tales to Terrify, has contributed to such podcasts as The Other Stories and The Night's End, as both a narrator and writer. She can be found on Twitter at Georgia Cooked and on her website at georgiacookwriter.com. Thank you, Georgia. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, 
whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we unleash the beast with more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.